Good morning. My name is Julie Steele, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Philippians. You're going to follow along in your Bibles, or you can use the screens, and I'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 from the New American Standard Bible. So then, my beloved, just if you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The word of the Lord. Sorry, we have some lights flickering, so I was hoping to put you all under hypnosis, but I think I'm going to get hypnotized up here. (laughs) All right, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to spend today and next week closing out our series in the book of Galatians. We've been calling it Completely Happy. Oh, excuse me. These lights. And then after we're done with Galatians, we're going to start... Uh, new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? Uh, Today I want to talk about not grace in theory, which is wonderful and it's touching and it's inspiring, and if you want to read more about or hear more about grace in theory, you can log on to our SoundCloud uh, website, archives, and search for a sermon called Grace and the Gospel, and that'll lay out sort of the uh, theory and theology of grace Um, as it's been passed on to us. But today, I want to talk about grace in practice. And grace in practice is a little bit murkier. It's messy. And sometimes we experience it as meaningless or powerless. And I want to suggest to you that it's uh, not powerless at all. It's actually uh, change that happens to us. And that can feel murky and messy because we are murky and messy. But grace is absolutely effective. And I want to suggest to you today that it is the foundation of anything that we would deem as worthy of thought. That grace is such a primary concept and need that it underlies anything that we would deem valuable. Uh, Today what I want to do is I want to tell you a few stories And I also want to read to you a couple of stories I haven't read to you in a while, so we'll do that. And I want to start with a story that pertains to this picture back here. That's uh, my car. Those are my ghetto homemade crossbars that carry my stand-up paddleboards, which uh, you'll hear about in a second here. But 
Uh, I paid attention to grace this week. Just lots of gracious things happened. I bore witness to the power of grace in my life this week. Uh, For example, uh, that car is parked in Seattle near the corner of Pike Place and Bellevue. It's just just a stone's throw. You can see uh, First Covenant Church right there. Right, so I parked it there because I had just dropped uh, some of my family members off at Virginia Mason, and then I was looking for a parking spot. I ended up all the way over here, and then I was completely in look for a parking spot mode, and I had Mia and my dog with me, and so I was sort of distracted. I didn't pay attention at all to where the car was, and then I proceeded to walk to Virginia Mason sort of meandered and got lost along the way, but finally got there. Uh, Susie and uh, the other kids came out at 11.30 a.m. Then we started walking around looking for the car. (laughs) We walked for over an hour, could not find the car. So then we walked back to Virginia Mason, and Susie and the girls, there's a little, every Friday they cut, block off a street right next to Virginia Mason, they have food carts there. So they were hanging out there, and I said, I got this. I'll go look for the car. Five minutes later, uh, now it's 11.35, Bill O'Brien from our church. Do you know who Bill O'Brien is? He's the white guy that's always saying amen to my sermons. (laughs) Love the guy, because I I need and love affirmation so much. Um, So he, he just runs into me. He says, what are you doing? Why are you here walking around looking like that? I said, oh, I'm just looking for my car. And he's like, are you okay? I'm fine. So he goes away. (laughs) Ten minutes later, Bill comes back in a different part of the city, finds me still wandering around. (laughs) He says, are you sure you're okay? And I said, what are you doing back here? He said, well, I needed quarters for the meter. I got quarters. And he said, hop in. I looked around. Okay, fine. I hopped in. We drove around for an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> Did not find my car. Now it's been two hours. Finally, Bill has a lunch thing. So he graciously, uh, I forced him out of my life because I just was, it was ridiculous what I was subjecting him to. And he said, Peter, I can't just leave you. And I said, you have to. <laughs> Go, save yourself. And so Bill's, Bill goes to lunch, and there I am. I walk around for exactly one more hour, third hour, and I find the car. And it was by accident. It's just a ridiculous story, but here's the grace in this story. Not only did Bill show up, which was encouraging, and he helped me knock out sections of the city that I knew <laughs> my car didn't, wasn't in, but I go back to Susie, Not one single condemning, upset, or frustrated look from her. Not even a look. Not a single word of judgment. All I got from her was, are you okay? You must be so tired. That's what she said. I could not believe it, and I realized that summed up my marriage in a nutshell. And if you know Susie, you know this is true. This is, this is what I get to walk home to. Okay, so before that, a week ago, another story here. 
Uh, we got invited to have pizza at somebody's house Sunday at 4 p.m. And I had the brilliant idea to paddle there and meet there. And so I left way earlier, like an hour and a half earlier. I figured it'd be a couple of miles. It turned out it was about five miles. I didn't know that at the time. And I had to make it around from the west side of Mercer Island, around to the north tip, and back down to the south side. But I got stuck on the north side, because the chops and the waves are pushing me, and I can't keep paddling, so then I stop, and then I drift back, and then I paddle, and I, was, I went like that for an hour. I had, did not have my phone with me, and right then and there, I literally knelt on my board, put my hands together, and I started praying, and I said, God... I need you to rescue me. Please have somebody ask me if they can tow me. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. I said amen. As soon as I finished saying amen, somebody said, hey there. Shocked. It was a sailboat, a two-man sailboat that had just pulled up right next to me, and I didn't hear it because it's silent. He said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing all right. Why do you ask? He goes, do you need a tow? And he told me the rest of the way. <laughs> True story. That was all this week. Okay. On another night, I go paddleboard, uh, stand-up paddleboarding, and I just hastily kicked off my flip-flops. And I remember noting as I drifted away from the shore that my shoes are too close to the water. And I had hoped I would still have shoes when I got back. Came back an hour and a half later, and my flip-flops had been gathered together and pushed about six feet on top of the beach. Somebody had touched my nasty flip-flops and moved them up. And I thought, what kind person does such a thing? Okay, one more grace story. Last night... um, Susie and I uh, and the kids, we go to one of our favorite spots in the city, Fremont Brewery. We go up to the counter, we order a beer for Susie and a beer for me, and the guy looks at us and he goes, you know what? I got this. And we thought, okay, he's going to go pour the beers himself instead of asking somebody else to do it. And then he brings back the beers and he goes, no, no, I got you. It's, it's all good. I said, why? He just says, oh, no, no, I got it. We couldn't believe it, and we just walked away with free beer. I still don't know why. Those are four stories of grace this week that I experienced. Um, It was small things, little things, but here's what I experienced. There's such a thing as relational grace. When somebody is kind to you, when you're generous with somebody else. They're sort of give and take. And it leads to me feeling happy. How did I feel, even though we had wandered the streets of Seattle for three hours, when there was not one word of condemnation, and a random church person shows up and drives me around for over an hour? How does it feel when my wife is kind to me? How does it feel when somebody takes care of my flip-flops. It leads to happy. What was the expression on my face when somebody says, I got you? And there's situational grace. You know, a lot of times things are sort of just happening. A prime example might be something like a a traffic jam in Seattle, trying to get out of the city at 4 p.m. on a Thursday. 
You know how long that takes if you've tried to do that, right? If you're caught in uh, on, uh, Mercer Street, you know what that's like. And it's easy to start beating up on the moment. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't take this long. Or you sort of just are gracious with the moment. You let the moment be what it is. There are a lot of cars trying to get out of the city right now, and I'm one of them. So I'm going to just relax. I'm not going to get upset about every single moment. I'm going to just sort of be loose with it. I'm going to open my heart up to this moment. So relational grace and situational grace allows you to experience a kind of joy, a kind of happiness, a kind of contentment, a kind of okayness. I think uh, these examples uh, help illustrate this profound truth that grace really is part of the essential ingredient that we need in life. We have to be in the flow of grace. We have to be in sort of the give and take of what it means to live together, be together here on planet Earth. Uh, So then, my beloved, for it is God. This is how Paul begins. Probably the the key, uh, one of the the key application sections in the book of Philippians. After the theological exposition about Christ, and how he humbled himself, how he showed his love. He says, so then, now this is what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to put grace into practice. And what's the first thing that Paul wants to remind us? That we are loved. And it is not you, but it is God. This thing called love, this thing called grace, free love, when you don't deserve it, that's not from you. That's why you have to get caught up in the flow of it, right? Here's what love means. If love, if it's true that we are beloved first and foremost, and it is God and not us, that means that love neither starts or ends with you. Love finds its source outside of you. Let me ask you, if you die, is there a decrease of love in the world? Has love ceased? Has love died with you? I think then you realize it's not from you because love still exists. Love is still a thing with or without you. It finds its source outside of you and you are invited to participate in it. You're invited to be, this is the key concept, a vessel of love. And that's your choice. You can choose to embody love. You may not understand where it comes from or why it's in the air, but it is. And you get a choice to participate in it or not. When a stressful moment arrives, you can still be a vessel of love and kindness and generosity. When somebody deserves to be condemned because they forgot where they parked their car for three hours, you can choose to be a vessel of love because it's out there. You yourself, you might be feeling upset. You can feel 
judgment rising up in you. You can feel that critical spirit sort of take over. Or say, well, that's me, but this moment is not about me. I can be a vessel of love. And that's an invitation that's extended to us in any given moment. This is what it means that it is God, that we are beloved. This is love, not that we have first loved, but that he first loved us. Love, by definition, finds its source outside of you. It is from God. In fact, the scriptures teach it is God. God is love. And he invites us to embody it. I want to read you uh, a story uh, that uh, I think uh, is really powerful. It's in a, a book called Grace in Practice by Paul. So actually, this is less of a story, more of an explanation. But it's describing this uh, kind of one-way love. The one-way love of grace is the essence of any lasting transformation that takes place in human experience. You can find this out for yourself by taking a simple inventory of your own happiness or the moments of happiness you have had. They have almost always had to do with some incident of love or belatedness that has come to you from someone outside yourself when you were down. You felt ugly or sinking in confidence, and somebody complimented you or helped you or spoke a kind word to you. You were at the end of your rope, and someone showed a little sympathy. One-way love is the change agent in everyday life because it speaks in a voice completely different from the voice of the law. It has nothing to do with its receiver's characteristics. Its logic is hidden within the intention of its source. Theologically speaking, we can say it is the prime directive of God to love the world in no relation to the world's fitness to be loved. Speaking in terms of Christian theology, God loves the world in a kind of reverse relationship to its moral unfitness. God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. In the dimension of grace, one-way love is inscrutable or irrational, not only because it is out of relation with any intrinsic circumstances on the part of the receiver. One-way love is also irrational because it reaches out to the specifically undeserving person. This is the beating heart of it. Grace is directed toward what the scripture calls the ungodly. Not just the lonely, not just the sick and disconsolate, but the perpetrators, the murderers and abusers, the people who cross the line. God has a heart, his one-way love for sinners. This is the problem with Christianity, this piece of logical and ethical incongruity and inappropriateness is the problem with Christianity. While humans tend to attach strings to the gifts we give, acts of mercy and charity that occur in spite or because of ample reason for them not to could be considered gracious. We often experience grace in such terms, being loved when we feel unlovable, praised when we deserve reproach, rewarded when we should be punished. Have you ever experienced love or grace when you have not deserved it? when it was surprising, 
when you didn't have expectations for it? What does it do to you? What does it create in you? What the scriptures teach is the very food for us, the souls that we uh, call the self. We need love first and foremost. And the one place that it comes from is God. Because you look around, you do the math, and you say, well, it doesn't come from me. I'm invited to participate in it, to be in the flow of it, but it's not from me. I'm a mere vessel of it. Well, that means it's not from you either. I feel you loving me, but it's not from you. It's just coming through you. Then where does it come from? Does it come from animals? Does it come from the earth itself? Where does love come from? And you have to answer that question whether you believe in God or not. But the scriptures teach it's from God, that God is love. Turn on the radio, listen to the songs. What are they singing about? They're singing about love. Pick up a book. What are they writing about? They're writing about love. Watch movies. What are you watching? Stories of love. Love is the food that makes the world go round. But love isn't from us. That means in the end, it is from God. So this is one way I might say it. In the end, God is love is the only story that is ever being told. It is the ultimate defining truth, the light by which we understand all other truths. Because this one fact that God is love is the primary truth as it pertains to us. Uh, we have uh, expressions of this love, and Paul certainly lays it out for us. Verse 12, work. Verse 13, work. Verse 14, do. Verse 16, run, toil. 17 has intense words like poured out, sacrifice, uh, service. And here's what Paul is teaching here. There is such a thing as the overflow of grace. When you are the beloved of God, when you understand that God is at work, then you can be blameless and innocent. You can be children of God, children of God above reproach and lights in the world. That's what it's like. When you are loved and out of that love, you overflow in service to others. You're not doing math. You're not seeking some payment. You're not doing it to get, but you're doing it out of joy, out of abundance, out of faith that there's more to come. Or the alternative is you work out of a deficit of grace rather than an overflow. And Paul outlines what happens when you are in that mode. You're grumbling. You're disputing. You're crooked. And you're perverse. The way you start thinking about everything is perverted. It's not truthful. You start objectifying people, quantifying relationships. You're getting perverse and crooked. And you start arguing or disputing. Because you have to get 
And you have to get as much as you can. And you have to get it as soon as possible. And you have to hoard it. And you have to gather it and collect it and have it. It's not enough to be in the flow of it. And I think we have these two ways we get to live. Out of an overflow of grace. Or out of a deficit of grace. Paul says it this way, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You know, Paul is not living the easy life, but he understands himself to be the beloved of God. He understands that Christ died for him. Christ has a call on his life. And so all that he does, even, in, even though it feels like sacrifice, there's a kind of joy and contentment that he speaks of, and it comes through. There's a kind of humility, a sense that his life is not his to hold on to and sort of do the math on all the time but he's sort of letting go. There's a kind of detachment. His identity is well differentiated from his work. And so he's able to participate in the flow of grace. And the end product is his joy. He's happy. He's content. Uh, I want to offer up uh, two application points for you, because I think grace uh, in practice is very tricky. And uh, uh, the first one is to confess your sin. If you come to any situation, any situation where grace might help, just ask the question, what can I confess? What can I take responsibility for? What sin, my sin, can I confess? The opposite of grace is when you're confessing the other person's sin. But what allows grace to enter the room is when you confess yours. Two really powerful words in the English language. I'm sorry. When you're in the midst of tension, say the words, I'm sorry. And then follow by something very specific. Name what you've done wrong. Name what you should have done, what you should have thought, what you should have said, what you shouldn't have said. Just name it. It's hard. But as soon as you say it, you feel the relief in relational tension. And then grace comes out. Because you, you confess your sin in faith, that there'll be, there's going to be grace. And then what do they do? Oh, no, that's okay. Now they're able to participate in the flow of grace too. Do things like make amends, bring peace offerings. Do something, change your behavior, make a promise. The alternative to saying I'm sorry is to live in the tension. It's to start grumbling and disputing and becoming crooked, which is adding more sin and becoming perverse, which is maintaining an skewed view. Or you say, I'm sorry. So that's application point number one. It's really simple. 
How does grace work? It starts with you confessing your sin. Application two, make way for specialists. I think the church is really good at being generalists. But I want our church to be an open source church. And what that means is when we are going through painful, complicated situations in which we need a lot of grace, we don't necessarily look to the whole church for that, but we open ourselves up to specialists. So if you're a parent and your child has, is showing some symptoms of sickness, do you say, well, I am the lover in this child's life, so I'm going to do it? No, you don't do that. You say, let's call a doctor. The way you love a specifically needy child is by calling in specialists. You're an open source leader. You know that your child needs love, but how and the specific kind of love your child needs, you start asking questions and opening up to other sources beyond yourself. That's the way you let grace enter the room. And so if you have marriage problems, you go seek a specialist, right? If you're struggling with specific sins, you go seek specialists. The church doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all, one-stop shop for how grace gets conveyed into your life. So open your eyes and open your uh, mind up to the thousands, hundreds of thousands of helpful specialists out there through whom you will experience the grace of God. I want to end the sermon uh, with a story by Gordon Atkinson. I used to read him a lot, uh, and this is a story that I had marked uh, years ago, and it just seems to fit today, so I want to read it uh, for us. It's a really uh, good story, and uh, um, I think it's going to move you. I don't know how the Kramers found our church. We were off the beaten path, and we don't advertise. Maybe it was God. I don't know. Jennifer was only 19, and David was 20, but they already looked beaten, worn, and creased. They were rough in speech and manner. He worked construction, and she worked off and on at the 7-Eleven. Their marriage was shaky at best, and their three-year-old son, David Jr., was acting out in ways that one might expect. The family, this family, definitely had some rough edges. About a month after the Kramer started coming to church, we were gathered together for our Wednesday night meal. Everyone was sitting around the tables, chatting after supper, when we heard a terrible scream from down the hall. The first thing I saw was Stan and Carol running towards Joanne, one of our deacons, who was carrying Elliot into the kitchen. He was screaming at the top of his lungs, and there was something in the scream that made every parent stop talking. You knew it was something serious. Everyone rushed to the kitchen. Joanne put Elliot on the counter, and people crowded around talking all at the same time. Carol pulled up Elliot's shirt, and everyone fell silent. On his back were eight vicious bites, two rows of four oval wounds. The skin was broken and oozing blood. Angry red welts were rising around the teeth marks. Do you know the horror that borders on disbelief? Do you know that sad, squinting face people make when they mouth words but do not say them? That's how we were. The ugliness made us squint. 
Helpless, we formed words with our mouths but did not speak. It was Joanne who found them in the Sunday schoolroom. David Jr. had dragged Elliot to the ground and was growling as he bit him over and over. Innocent little Elliot, only two years old, didn't even know how to struggle. He was bitten 14 times, each one drawing blood. He had bites on his back, arms, and head. As everyone fussed over Elliot, David Jr. walked into the kitchen and watched with an innocent and unconcerned expression. I stared at him in wonder. How can a three-year-old have such rage? How can his anger come and go so quickly? Where did he learn to bite like that? David and Jennifer came rushing around the corner and immediately saw what had happened. Jennifer cried out, Oh my God, not again, David. Then she ran out of the church, crying hysterically. Later, I discovered this was not the first time this had happened. The Kramers had developed a tragic pattern. They would find the church they liked, settle in, and begin to make friendships. Then David Jr. would bite a child, forcing them to leave in shame. They should have warned us, but they were young and foolish. Their denial about their son was only one of the ways they were out of touch with reality. David picked up his son and pleaded his apologies. As he edged toward the door, he kept saying the same thing over and over. I'm sorry, he knows better. I'm sorry, he knows better. Tossing one final I'm sorry over his shoulder, David ran out the door. I followed him and found Jennifer in the parking lot talking with one of our deacons. I don't know what he was saying to her, but she had a crazy look and was edging toward their old pickup. I could tell they wanted to leave. Who could blame them? To be honest, I was hoping they would leave. I was in such shock. I was trying to be nice, but I was so angry and so sad all at once. Then the front door of the church banged open, and Carol burst out. She ran toward Jennifer, who froze and whispered, Oh, my God. As Carol approached, Jennifer lowered her eyes and began to weep and apologize. I'm so sorry. My God, I'm so sorry. Carol didn't say anything at first. Then she put her left hand on Jennifer's shoulder and her right hand under her chin. She lifted Jennifer's face and spoke in a very soft but firm voice. Stop. Listen to me, she said. Elliot is going to be fine. He will heal, and he will get over this. I'm not worried about Elliot. Do you know what does worry me? Jennifer shook her head, tears streaming down her cheeks. I'm worried that you and David will be so embarrassed about this that you will never come back to our church. That's the only thing that worries me. We've come to love your family, and you need to be here with us. You need church, and I want you to promise me that you'll come back this Sunday. Jennifer didn't answer her. I don't think she could, really. She did what felt right. She melted into Carol's arms, sobbing. There was something different about the way she was crying, too. It was sad crying, but not as crazy and not as lonely as before. They stayed like that for a long time. Two mothers holding each other in the parking lot. Two mothers crying for their sons. I watched and had the strangest impulse to take off my shoes. It's one thing to read about Christ in Bibles and books. It's quite another thing to meet him in person. Quite another thing. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence 
only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want to end with a quote from a friend who said, there is always more grace in Christ than there is guilt in us. Be happy, friends. You are loved. Amen.